Let me encourage you today, even though we are in the Beatitudes, to turn to Psalm 24, where we will be at some point, and I'm going to read as well. You know, sometimes, uh, and maybe especially in this uh, season of political debates and uh, promises and things like that, uh, we can get a a little cynical about uh, amazing promises that are made. With uh, the State Fair uh, here, it reminded me of when I was a, a kid growing up. Uh, going to a carnival, it's not that the state fair is just a carnival, I, I don't mean that at all, but I remember going to a, a carnival, which I loved to do as a little boy, and my parents giving me a, a little bit of my own money, and I can't remember what it was, it probably was 75 cents or something like that, and said, uh, uh, when you know, if you spend all that, then come back, and your day is over, and and that kind of a thing. And I remember at the carnival, and those of you that uh, went to these types of carnivals, going to the area where the sideshow was. Now, they didn't really call it sideshow in that day, but. What they called it, I don't think would be politically correct to, uh, to call it. So we will call it the sideshow. And I remember uh, there being a, a carnival barker out there trying to get you to come into this tent. And there being several things, I, there was probably a lot of things I wanted to see in that tent. But the ones that I remember, uh, he promised to show a two-headed snake a sword swallower, and a bearded lady. Now, for a little boy, you know, how can you possibly resist that? Although, as I look back, for the life of me, I don't know why I wanted to see a bearded lady. <laughs> and now, as an adult, that would be way down the list for me. <laughs> but then I paid my... 10 cents or 15 or 25 cents, whatever it was, to get into the tent. And I walked in and I saw all of these sideshow things and every one of them was a letdown. It just wasn't. And they had you walk out the other end of the tent because they didn't want you walking out the same end. So you'd say, don't go in, don't waste your money or anything like that. And after a few of those kinds of experiences growing up, and as we mature, then we begin to think, you know what? That promise is too good to be true. I'm sure somewhere in that promise, there's a letdown. What if I were to say to you, Come this way, and you can see God. Step this way. I promise you. And this is not a hollow promise. 
It is a promise that is a lock. It is absolute. How can that be? We read in Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon river, the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul <coughs> to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And then in Matthew 5, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. We are here today, Lord, because... We believe you don't make hollow promises. You have told us that there is a happiness at being pure in heart. How can that be? It's too hard. But you have also told us that we shall see God if we are. And so, Lord, will you open that up to us? Will you teach us? Will you draw us? Will you mold us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> there are countless religions in the world, but there are two kinds of religions. Countless religions out there, but, but really you can boil them down to two kinds. To the religion of human achievement and accomplishment, our works, Many would not want to call it that, but that's what it boils down to, what you do in order to get what you want, which is to see God. And then there is the other kind that is the religion of divine accomplishment. Divine works. Divine achievement. All the religions of the world are in the one side. Human achievement. Human accomplishment. And Christianity stands unique on the other side. Where it is about divine accomplishment. About what He did to enable relationship with Him. There is a default mode for us. 
And that default mode is to fall into thinking, even if we uh, claim to be Christian, but to fall into that thinking that somehow it's about what I do. And even if we hold to and we hold fast to that truth that I can't do anything for my own salvation, too often we tend to act like we, it's about what we do to retain that salvation or to have a better relationship with God. Or maybe He will love me more if I do these things. All through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes a distinction between those two kinds of religions. And He does that with this phrase today. And He drives us to see the standard that must be reached. Purity of heart. Now, as I, as I see the two sides of that, the pure in heart and that they shall see God. Who wouldn't want to see God? But some look at the other side and they say, you mean at the cost of a pure heart? What am I going to have to give up? What am I going to have to do in order to have that pure heart? Because I do want to see God. I've told you each week that uh, the Beatitudes build on one another. So each week we've got to ask ourselves, why did Jesus say this here if they are building upon one another? Why did he say this one at this point? After all, if you look at that last phrase, for they shall see God, isn't that the whole point really should be of all of them? Why isn't it at the beginning to go ahead and tell you how to see God? Or maybe like when we went through Ecclesiastes, at the very end as the climax, this is how you shall see God. It's not even exactly in the middle. So how does it fit in with the others. Well, as we think back, the first three Beatitudes were concerned with our, our, need, our need and the knowledge of that need. The poor in spirit, mourning because of our sin, meekness as a result of a true understanding of our nature, not being prideful, not being self-centered. And then the fourth one, the statement of the satisfaction of the, the need and, and God's provision as we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we looked at all of those and saw that, how all of them take us right back to the Gospel and to relationship with Christ. That one being really the central statement in, in the ladder, if you want to call it a ladder, in this walk of faith. From that point on, we're looking at the results of being filled. Those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be filled. What are the results of that? We become merciful and forgiving, pure in heart, peacemakers, and ultimately, we may suffer persecution for righteousness' sake. Lloyd-Jones says that it's like the first three are going up one side of the mountain, we reach the summit in the fourth, and then we come down the other side. Now, people 
listening to Jesus would have had plenty of Old Testament teaching on purity. That's why I read to you earlier why we had at the beginning of our service Psalm 24. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? In other words, the the question really there is, who can see God? And then it gives the answer. Here's who. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Now, I believe Jesus really condensed uh, that down, the teachings of the Old Testament, into this uh, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Now, here's what I want you to notice. At verse 4 in Psalm 24, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart is the one who does not lift up his soul to what is false or swear deceitfully. Now, you may be a little confused here in that. Because you may say, well, wait a minute. Just a few minutes ago, you said uh, all the world religions are about what you do. And it sounds like this is talking about what you do. How does that fit in with Christianity? Well, what we do is important, but it's not what gets us to God. It is a result of that which God has done in us that causes us to be in that status. Jesus' emphasis again and again is that that the inward must match the outward. He's never satisfied with just the outward. This one in Psalm 24 is not a, not a compromiser, not an accommodator. But that being on the outside, that activity is not sufficient. So you have people that come to see Jesus and they're saying, Okay, well, we we still want to see God. We've seen all this throughout the Old Testament. We, we, We see various teachings. And what kinds of teachings were they getting in their day? Well, all you got to do is look at His interaction with the Pharisees, and that shows you what kinds of teachings they were getting in their day. Jesus had lots of interaction with them. And I'm convinced that he aims this beatitude right at the Pharisees. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus emphasizes that the outward's not enough. He says, look, it's, you know, if, if you uh, um, sin, of course, it's the outward. But if you so much as think evil thoughts... That's sin as well. He ratchets it up from just these outward things that so many wanted to dwell on. And certainly that was the case with the Pharisees. And so we see him later on talking to the Pharisees and saying, look, you're, you're just like a, a cup that is clean on the outside. But if you look on the inside, it's filthy. That's what you're like. And then he talks to them about their actions. 
He says, you, you do this and this and this. And he, he never says those are bad things to do. But he says, but at the same time, you don't love others. So what he's saying is that uh, you should have done all of these things, but your inward should have matched up with what you're doing outwardly. And that's our dilemma. As Sammy was talking about earlier, there are things in our life that reveal who really we are, where the inward eventually comes out. And that's our dilemma. It's a matter of the heart. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, that's exactly what you're missing out on. You're missing that about God. Now, if you think uh, about Jesus' emphasis on the heart, you realize that he is saying it really is a heart issue and not an intellectual one. We need to always remind ourselves, especially here, you know, we're, as Presbyterians, we tend to uh, love our theology, and that's a good thing. And want to have precise theology, that's a right thing to do. But right theology should always lead to right living. If it really is right theology, and then it's a theology of the heart. Because one can have a, a purely intellectual interest in theology and the things of God and be completely lost and without hope. It's the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. There, there's an interesting book that uh, I've, I've read most of, and I go back and I read new portions of it. It's called uh, The Year of Living Biblically by A.J. Jacobs. I heard him uh, interviewed on NPR, and I thought, i got to get that book, and I got it, and I've, I've uh, as I said, read it. The, the subtitle is One Man's Humble Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible. And so what he does is, as a, a writer, is he starts studying the Bible. He's an agnostic. Starts studying the Bible and trying to do everything that it says to do in the Bible, uh, literally. Now, that's not a bad thing to do, but it, it, it makes for kind of an interesting read. It's uh, often quite funny. He's living in New York City, and uh, um, you know all the things that he tries to put into practice and so on. Well, he goes through a whole year of trying his best to obey what the Bible says and uh, to try to understand it, and so on. Well, at the end of the book, there is, uh, and, and I've heard this part on, in that interview, and then there's a, uh, a conversation with A.J. Jacobs. And the question is, so where are you in terms of faith at this point? That's the basic question. And he said, well, I'm, I'm still an agnostic. I, I'm a reverent agnostic, though, because I've got more respect for those who try to carry this out. I thought, well, you know, that's exactly, that's exactly the problem that 
the Pharisees had. They weren't just doing it to write a book or something. They might have had a very sincere desire for God. But they were misguided and, and they had the outward down. But the inward was the problem. And that brings us to the biblical view of the heart. The heart, biblically, is, is our, our whole being. Our mind and soul, physical actions. And Jesus is calling for an undivided heart. And that's what being pure of heart really is. But we still have a problem. I say, okay. You might say, I really, really want to see God. But as I look at my own heart, I struggle with the divided heart. There are times I'm winning victories, but there's way too many times when I'm not winning victories. And for someone that can look inside my heart like God can, He knows that. So does that mean I can't see God? Well, here's where the blessedness comes in. It's the good news. How we can see God. You remember David who had sinned greatly against God? He'd been confronted with his sin. He acknowledged it. He cries out to God for forgiveness. And then he says this. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Here is perhaps the most powerful man in the world at that time, and he knew he couldn't fix his own heart. And so he went to the only one who could. God, create in me a clean heart. In Ezekiel 36 it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Okay. We still want to see God. How can we get this new, newly created heart? Well, God does the work. And then you're enabled. If you have the desire, He's put it within you to trust in Christ alone for your eternal life. You go to the only one who had a perfectly undivided heart, who took that heart to the cross, and then it stopped when he died for those of us with divided hearts. He's the creator of new hearts. And if we do, then you'll see God. Now, how's that work? What's that mean? We'll see God. Well, it's partially now and fully later. The now 
we who are in Christ, we do see God in various ways. Those who have faith and trust in God, believe He's in control of all things, see God. We see Him in nature. We see Him in circumstances where we're not saying, boy, well, I'm thank my lucky stars for that because we know it's not lucky stars. We see God in that. We see Him in the events of history. But these are, these are only seen with the eyes of, of faith. And it's really, it's really only like a glimpse. Have you ever uh, been in a room or something and you, you, you thought you saw something out of your peripheral vision? And then you, 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 you kind of turn, you either see it or you don't. Well, that's kind of what this is like in terms of our seeing God. Paul said, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully. John said, beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared. And we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. So it's partial now. We see Him. We see Him in the body of Christ. His hands, His feet working, His love, and so on. But then, we will see Him as He is. Now, if you believe this, if you really believe, if you really shall see God, it will revolutionize your life. Let me give you one biblical example. You have Stephen who knew Christ. He speaks out for Christ to the point where those who were religious people got mad at him. So mad that they decided to stone him. They take him out to stone him. And it says this, He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And so they picked up stones and they begin to kill him by stoning him. What an awful way to die. And what did he do? Well, he did a couple of things. He forgave them while they were stoning him. And then it says... He fell asleep. Now, that means he died. But there's a lot of ways to describe death without saying he fell asleep. 
it was a violent death. But because he had seen God, he was able to forgive those he interacted with. And he was able to cope with his own death in a way that was supernatural. I can't promise that you will physically see Jesus from this earth. Although I've been around enough people near the time of their death that I'm not going to say you won't either. I have seen an uncommon, an uncommon and unexplainable apart from God supernaturally working calm at times for those who are trusting in Christ. But I do promise if you are, you will see God. The blessedness of that is inconceivable and you, children of the living God, are destined for nothing less than that. Let's bow together. We thank you for this incredible promise that we could not possibly fulfill by our own doing to be able to see God. We thank you for the finished work of Jesus on the cross that enables us to be in that position. Will you, Lord, help us daily, even before we see him face to face, but in this life to be so profoundly affected by that, that that we are forgiving of others and we are merciful and, and it affects every action in our life. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.